Hi, this is Marina Sirtis, and you're listening to Trekmate. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Trekmate podcast. Its continuing mission to entertain, enlighten, educate, and talk all things Trek. To boldly go where no podcast has gone before. Make it so. Prepare to attack. All hands battle station. Don't worry. We will get to the bottom of this. All right. As is a tall ship and a star steer by. I don't want excuses. I want answers. Am I authorized to enter the neutral zone? How do you think that tells me about your character? Captain's log, stardate 3541.9. Program complete. Enter when ready. Hello and welcome to Trackmate. I'm Jude Hawkins and as ever I'm here with Wayne Emery. Hello everyone. Hello. That's How you doing, man? I'm doing very well, mate. Doing very well. Cool. Being very busy as always. It's always the thing is, even though it's like I know last week the pod that went out was a week late, um, and I do apologise for that. It's just that that week got absolutely rammed with doing things for Trek on and other stuff. That it, by the time that it would have come out, it was would have been Thursday, so it meant that really you would have only had a couple of days until the next pod so we figured well we might as well hold on to it for a couple of days and then release yeah. it this Sunday so I, I honestly believe that most people out there understand you know what's going on you know with, with the fact that we've got stuff going on with YouTube uh, but, but wasn't back in the day and now obviously we've got Trek on which is a massive thing that re- requires a lot of time and effort mm-hmm. so and I'm also, sure I think most it, understand and I think long-time uh, listeners will also remember that there, there was sometimes regular gaps of a week, two weeks, sometimes much longer uh, back in the day. But obviously, because uh, as a listener, you uh, box-set it, uh, yeah. as it were, uh, you, you never got to experience that. But yeah, no listeners uh, back in uh, like long-term listeners will know that there has always been occasional gaps. So one week. Uh, gap isn't that bad really well also i'm saying you know i'm saying youtube i'm saying trek on but there's just real life as well isn't there like there's just so much stuff that comes up what you can't predict and you've just got oh, to deal yeah. with as it comes well that's the thing as, as well as everything trek mate we have to actually lead normal functioning lives as well so uh but yep. it, it, Saying that, if you guys want to change that, uh, support us at Patreon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're just going to keep saying that more and more now. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Uh, support us at Patreon. And uh, whilst we're here, we might as well t- turn around and say, remember to get your tickets for Trek on August 19th. We've got Guy Signer, we've got uh, Max Gredenchik, we've got uh, Paul Olsen, we've got James Swallow, we've got Una McCormack, and we've got um, uh, John Carrigan all coming to the con. We've got uh, we've got plenty of dealers coming, guest talks included with your entry ticket, 
uh, as well as uh, gaming zones and we're going to be having plenty of other fun stuff which we will announce as and when uh, it happens tickets at trackmateevents.com and remember to uh, book them now get them now and we can say that we now have also got something else slightly special lined up uh, for the late afternoon of the con we're just waiting to 100% confirm uh, everything but I think you all agree Jude it'll be something special for everyone oh yeah yeah I'll I'll look forward to this this would be Another one of those things where advertising the con, if I saw this advertised, I'd be like, oh, cool, nice. Yeah, So exactly. It's one of those things that is really will be appreciated by so many people, but also for us, with my history with the person, is just natural to be able to arrange yeah, yeah, and I love well. that. I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we should probably stop talking about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, definitely. But still, you had a couple of points that you wanted to discuss. Oh, I've got a bunch of stuff, but I'm I'm really happy to talk about at the beginning of today's show. If you are, um, one thing I was I was going to suggest something for the con, but I, I don't <laughs> I don't know if this would be like a conversation best had. Like off air, like we'll soon okay. find out. If it isn't, then there's going to be a silence for a couple of seconds. Yeah, I'll try and keep it clean. <laughs> um, I just thought, like, you, you know, pin the tail on the don on the donkey, like what you have at kids' parties and stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just thought there was a version of that. <laughs> I think I'm going to say we can't discuss it on the pod. Well, I'll try and keep it clean. I'm not I'm not going to... Does it involve hollow sweets? No, no. Not really. No? no very, very close to it. No, what it was. Is anyone who's listened to our recent review on YouTube of uh, The Magnificent Ferengi will know why I'm laughing yeah. and what I'm probably going to say. <laughs> it just came to me the other day. <laughs> I just thought like we could make some badges up and just like like charge a quid or something like if you know maybe give some of it to charity or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I thought is like instead of uh, pin the tail on the donkey, you could just have like pin the or or get the syrup on the groat cakes. <laughs> get the syrup on the groat cakes. <laughs> just have- just have a big picture on the wall oh, of, of Lita, like with a tray, and then we could just okay. <laughs> we could just put okay. some groat cakes on a tray, and okay, then like now, <laughs> I need you to understand, I love this idea. Yeah. However, I knew, I, everything you're about to also, say, I knew you were going to say. However, we are also selling child tickets. I know. <laughs> No, but, but there would actually would say, be actual groat cakes on the tray. But, like, we'd, but, we'd actually write groat cakes on them, so we wouldn't get in too much trouble. But, dude, what I would say <laughs> is, unlike your idea, that because we did say that we was going to have a couple of things to try and raise money for charity, mm. what if we had pinned the com badge on the officer 
and we could have a cardboard cut out of a Picard or a Riker or that's a much something. more and fair version. But what I was going to say is like my version, like <laughs> get the syrup cut squill. <laughs> I was going to say, you could just give people a badge. What's this? Okay, so are we I went straight from syrup On Lita's growth cakes. <laughs> oh, God. Sorry. You have put a lot of thought into this. <laughs> I have, yeah, like, some people, some people there would like it. Yeah, there would definitely be at least 20 out of the 700 <laughs> that would yeah. appreciate it. Yeah, but yeah, your idea, it probably make, is probably more practical. Or, but we could also maybe have a couple of versions, we could find something that you need to stab on something Star Wars-y as well. To appease Star Wars fans, yeah. As well, um, well, may- what, maybe what my could... idea, work, but save it for the late night party or something. But dude, yeah, if, you, if you want, if you if you want to have innuendos on it, we could definitely have like a stick the lightsaber on the Jedi. Oh, the yeah. game. There's all sorts of things we could come up with. We're, we're safer, but have a think about it anyway. But no, I like that idea. We're definitely going to do a more family-friendly version of yeah. the from Squirrel on the Groat Cakes game. Yeah, no, I like that. I like yeah. that. I'm gonna. That, that's definitely something that we can have going to try and raise a bit of money for charity. Yeah. It, it's easy and fun, and yeah, it's definitely something we can do to to raise money for charity and stuff, which I'm yeah, really happy to do. Um, definitely. Anyway, I'll, I'll calm down now. <laughs> yeah, there's all sorts of stuff I was going to talk to you about um, this week. Um, one thing I was going to say is I've got a, a, a confession to the Church of Trekmate. Oh, dear. Uh, I've done something sort of bad this last week. Basically... Don't tell me you've been listening to Trek FM, have you? No. <laughs> no. All Trek, mate, all the way. Um, I, I do listen to other pods, but all the pods that I listen to are, are non-Trek related, which mm-hmm. which I do talk about on here, and I was going to talk about in a minute, actually. Mm-hmm. But I was just going to say, yeah, my little confession is um, I had been doing, a, I've done a couple of videos for the Trek, mate, YouTube channel of me doing my introduction to Star Trek Online. Okay, yes, yes, you have. Um, which I did enjoy making them, um, but I've had so much going on, like I've moved house is the biggest thing just lately. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then just this last week, I've, I've gone back and played it, but I just just did not bother to put the, the headphones on and, and click the Twitch on and, and record it, which is a damn shame because some of the stuff I'd done was, was really fun and I think people would have enjoyed watching, but I can't, I can't go back and do it now. I, I, I guess... One of my reasons for not recording it all was I just thought, do you know what, I'm just going to get to the bit where I'm joining everybody else. Where yeah. I'm actually doing the online bit and it doesn't feel like a single player thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
but after the stuff I have recorded and puts on the YouTube channel, it doesn't take too long to get there. There's a few more, you know, Borg ships that you've got to destroy, and then uh, you destroy, uh, well, you obviously know this, you destroy a Borg cube, but you do it with the help yeah. of uh, the Defiant mm-hmm. and, a, and a couple of other ships, which I can't remember what they were. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's all very visually impressive. It's it's really cool stuff. Um, the game definitely gets better and better as as you go on. Absolutely, and being free on uh like, like on the consoles and everything, it's oh, it's brilliant. Uh, and what I will also say regarding all this is, it's taken me a little while to get to it because I only got my Xbox One at Christmas. And there's so mm-hmm. many games that I've wanted to play, and and the one game that I've been, what I have played to death is uh, Fallout 4, mm-hmm. which I've kind I've kind of done it now. I've done pretty much that you could do on that. Um, in fact, this stuff I was going to talk about, which I'll talk about another time. I, w- I won't do it now. Just remind me next week or or the week after. Um, mm-hmm. But on Star Trek Online, yeah, I, I'm basically. I thought I'd wait for you now, and we could uh, do some stuff together on there and record videos uh, for the YouTube. Yeah. But I'm I'm just on um, like the Earth star base. Um, it, you're not actually on Earth. It's like a um, yeah, like an orbital space, space dock. Is that what you call it? I think. Uh, I suppose so. Um, yeah. So I, I finally got to the point where. Uh, you can see other people running around, uh, just doing whatever it is they're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've not had the headset on, so I, I couldn't hear them if if they were talking. Yeah. Well, that's uh, but, but yeah, when I cool when I played it, I didn't thing. have the headset on either. So. Mm. Yeah, like there's some great creations on there. You can you can see how big a fans people are. It was funny because generally when I was on there. Um, could see people either level zero or level one like i am mm-hmm. or everyone is level 60 which i've got to presume is the highest level for this game because that's what everyone seemed to be i guess so i guess so. i haven't actually looked into that it's i'm presuming that's the cap point because that's what so many people were on there and you could see that they were wearing like wrath of khan stuff and uh, mm-hmm. Stuff that they, you know, they've they've either worked hard to earn or they've just outright paid for. Yeah. Um. Oh yeah, and Q's there. Q's there for some reason. Mhm. Uh, just just hovering, and uh, he has. It says there's girl dancers next to him, like uh, above them. It says like lady dancer, but they're like massive, pot-bellied orcs, like doing like groin thrusting <laughs> dances. It's just a bit odd. Um, Seems like Q's taste. Yeah. Unfortunately, in the game, I have one thing that is a shame. Um, is some characters have audio when they talk, and some of mm-hmm. them are, are, are just the text on the screen. Yeah. And it, it and Q is one of those, unfortunately, where it's just text, which I understand they might not have been able to get John Delancey, but I thought it was a shame that they didn't. At least for Q, you know, get someone to do an impression or something. Mm, yeah, no, I understand where you're coming from. It's, mm. but, it's, it's but it's all free, changed. so it's all good. You know, I'm still I'm still yeah. appreciating all of it, but I'm really looking forward to the next steps and 
if if you're up for it, I'm happy to do what we planned all along and 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 play on there together and see if we can do missions together. But if not, I'm I'm still happy to to go back to recording on my own. But I've um, yeah, I have uh, I've gone into the tailors. Uh, unfortunately, it wasn't Garrick, but I think it is a Cardassian. And I've mm-hmm. um, changed my uniform a bit, and I've I've made my uh, Andorian Starfleet officer look a bit more like what I wanted him to look like in the first place, because kind of rushed it. Um, cool. So he's now got dreads, a big massive beard, and he's got like Geordie's visor as well. Excellent. He's a he's a blind yeah. reggae yeah, blind yeah, Andorian. And his name is Sherbert West. So, Sherbert West. So if anyone um yeah, sees what we've just described there and he's called Sherbert West, that's me. <laughs> cool. Yeah. I look forward to meeting him. Uh, I think mine was a much more run of the mill trill. Yeah, it was a trill, which when I was watching it on my little computer screen, I couldn't even tell it was a trill. I thought it was a human, but but yeah, you can you can go and mess around with your character any time and, and you know edit it and make it look as silly or as fun or crazy as you like. Mhm. No, definitely. I'm looking forward to getting back into it. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to it now. Now that I finally finished Fallout. Though on. Uh, a totally different note, we are now going to be joined by a long-time friend of the show. So, let's go and join a legend. And now, the guest of the week. The guest of the week. The guest of the week. What you are seeing right now is the beauty that is the official Star Trek Facts Files. These were my own personal collection that I collected from beginning to end. And we thought that we'd take an in-depth look at the Facts Files. And there was really nobody that we would rather discuss it with than a man that had his hand firmly in that pie himself. (laughs) Dr. Trek... (laughs) Larry Nemechek. What a thing to say on Pi Day here. Happy Pi Day, guys. <laughs> That's it. It's very fitting. What What a metaphor. Yeah. Uh, crumbly apple pie of Star Trek fat files. Yes. Well, I can't take any claim to, you know, having created or organized them, but I was one of the people. I think I may have been the only person, especially the only American, mm-hmm. that was involved from uh, day one of the fact files. Mm-hmm. Uh, up until the very end. In fact, post fact files because there was a there was a D, a three set DVD uh, magazine combo that that ran in Japan for several years mm-hmm. after the the worldwide fact files ended. And there were several projects that um, that spun out of that until it all kind of came down and the world was totally digital and you mm-hmm. know the assets the the uh, assets went over to Eagle Moss and that's now the core of what Ben Robinson's using it, the, the, the ships and all yeah. those those spin-off things. Well, the, yeah. that's the thing, because uh, when it first came out back in 97, um, the internet hadn't really taken form as it would have done today. But Well, yeah. That actually, and they for, I still have the letter somewhere when they contacted me uh, in 96. We, we did the... The startup and the first six sample issues in mm-hmm. uh, started working on it in '96. 
because it was it was a massive concept. And it, well, that's the thing. It's an absolutely huge concept because over, I know different regions ended up running for uh, different amounts, but over <laughs> here we get 304 issues in total, which oh, it's okay, three, four, three or four, okay, yeah, yeah. which was 19 binders filled. <laughs> With fax files, and uh, that's the, looking at it. I've just looked it up. Seven thousand two hundred and ninety-six pages of information. Wow! And the fax files were presented in such a way that it was um, the majority of the fax files were done like in universe. They were done uh, from like the mm-hmm. perspective of. All of this is facts. This is what you need to know about this person, that ship. Mm-hmm. And then the uh, final section uh, was a, like a synopsis uh, about every single episode and movie uh, that took place. Mm-hmm. But it was the first time that you really got that much information on that much scale. Because right. Previously, when you get your technical manuals and everything else, they're absolutely beautiful. And, uh, well, my very first book that I ever read at seven years old, uh, like from beginning to end, was the Star Trek The Next Generation technical manual. (laughs) That explains a lot. Yeah, yeah. That, that actually explains a lot, Wayne. Yes, yes. That's the thing. I've learned the things that the were school... You, were you dropped on your head as a child? No. Many my times. <laughs> Next generation. <laughs> so, yeah, and... Um, but to have the amount of information that the facts files contained was absolutely phenomenal. And for me as a collector, it was one of those things that when I would get every single issue, uh, I would read through every single page just indulging on all of these uh, tidbits of knowledge that I may have missed well and you should have because nothing nothing look nothing like that ever existed before on anything much less on star trek mm. the thing is right on the heel as as the 6 year run of that was was going away part of the ending was people were the, the internet was coming along and you know the wikipedia's and memory alpha we're coming along mm. digital. Mm-hmm. Now it's one of my old one of my old um, chestnuts is that Star Trek invented the air the internet only with paper and stamps. You know uh, everything the passion that Star Trek created, you know on on the on the most shallowest level in an entertainment property, but the the whole Roddenberry vision and the passion that created in fans for that universe and that philosophy and those details. Mm-hmm. Um, had never existed before, and there was no machinery, there was no paradigm to handle it. And so, you know, Dorothy wrote the, I mean, uh, 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 Bijo wrote the companion, the concordance mm-hmm. uh, originally. The, the first in Star Trek encyclopedia was on paper, and Franz Joseph did his technical manuals, which all weren't, you know, totally canon derived. But it was filling a niche that nobody had, and the blueprints, and and David Gerald, I mean. Um, uh, uh, Stephen Poe wrote the first Making of Star Trek book, which is the first book about a layman's guide to making TV of anything, much less about Star Trek. But all of those mm-hmm. basic foundational books were filling such a hunger for Star Trek that was unprecedented. People didn't know all oh, the Trekkie kids. Who knows, you know, what's going on? The college age kids and the twenty somethings and the little and teenagers and little kids. 
And all of that. And then when fandom started, people were trying to get in touch with each other and needed information back and forth. Everything from, you know, the news of the franchise to fan clubs and fanzines and fan fiction and organizing conventions and how to run a club and how to do a convention. And, and all of that information, whether it was canon, you know, in universe or it was behind the scenes, all of that was, you know, people were just trying to figure out ways to, to deal with each other and get that across because the the market wasn't there. The mainstream media wasn't – I say that, not news, but I mean the publishing world, magazines and books. I mean nobody thought Starlog here in the States was going to go anything. It was a, It started off as a one-shot, and then they went to every uh, four months and then every three months, and then it was bi-monthly, and then it was monthly because in 1976, people were like, you're not going to sell out. You know, like science fiction uh, digest, literature, fiction, Star mm-hmm. Trek, fic- I mean, science fiction fiction had been around in a digest side for ages, you know, Amazing and and all those little the pulp magazines and onward. But a nonfiction, you know, magazine about Star Trek mm-hmm. or sci-fi was it was all that. You know, there's no market for that. Well, it took the 70s and it took Star Wars coming on the heels of Star Trek. But within the early 80s. Yeah, the market was there, and it was booming, and we were off and running to finally until the geeks took over. Big Bang Theory is the number one American you know, comedy, and uh, the Comic-Con movement and superhero Mar- Marvel DC movies. You know, The world we have today where pop culture took over, but back in the day, that was all – you just got things in drips and drabs, and the suits and the, and the bean counters didn't think there was enough audience to do all this stuff. Well, there, then you'd get your occasional Star Trek book, and people would go crazy. But when Star Trek, when the when the cutting edge of Star Trek, which you know, like the canon shows, started delivering, you know, rising to the audience, and some people think maybe having two series was a mistake and it cut the audience. But when you started having the level of detail churned out, because I was right there at Ground Central, you know, my Next Generation companion was right there when when the foam started to lather up, right? And then when we had DS9 and Voyage at the same time and TNG movies, and there was stuff being cranked out, you know, forever. I mean. Uh, I didn't get to do the encyclopedia. I was doing concordances, but Mike and Denise did the encyclopedia, and there was so much information being cranked out that there was no way to keep up. And I pitched mm. a couple of ideas, not magazines, but like slim books that could be updated quickly mm-hmm. that would try to keep up with – because fans wanted – they wanted – they didn't just want to see – you know, this is pre-internet too, or baby, baby, baby steps internet, mm-hmm. 90, 92, 94, 96, and, and fans – they needed – they didn't just want. They needed the way fans have always, I need this. You know, They needed stills with costumes for cosplay. They needed stills for ships, and they needed their props so they can do prop replicas and they could do ship models. And they needed uh, episodes so they could do transcriptions on their own You know, and look up facts. Mm-hmm. And you know, I had done my fanzine concordance like Bejo's for Next Generation. But even that was getting – and then I moved out here and was getting to work full-time, and that was even getting too much to keep up with. And you know, people yeah. were falling behind, So, and, and the, the encyclopedia was couldn't keep up – Mike and Denise couldn't keep up the publishing world fast enough. Plus, the encyclopedia, as massive as it was then, even now, the two-volume that they just wonderfully came out with, mm-hmm. it's, it's like skimming the top 5% of – detail right it's getting the most Mm -hmm. out there for the most people to use mostly Mm -hmm. but when you need to know nth degree (laughs) look or pick anyway so and that and then the dot connecting because you can only do so much in an entry if you're going to do long-term 
you know, dot connecting from one mention in the original series all the way to something in Enterprise, you know, yeah. and maybe a couple of th- times in D- DS9, you need those dots connected. And that is the world that the fact file stepped into. People mm-hmm. were so hungry for that. But the conventional wisdom was the market was not there to sell it yet. And the conventional wisdom was all about big, heavy books and pocketbooks had the license. Mm-hmm. And there's so much overhead to that. And yeah, Star Trek books were selling well. There was still time, that. and and there was just so fact files was this crazy idea that they came up with that that the aerospace had, and it was a concept that like you guys have had part works right yes for ages mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah a long long time now right so let, here's what I'll tell you so here's the American perspective one thing we don't have that when I first had the idea explained to me it made it was great sense but what we've had here over the years was things like we would have like recipe cards where you got you know about you know the tv commercial would come on and say you know get your low-cost recipe uh box today you're like every month you'll get you know 10 recipe cards wrapped up and and to start off with you'll get this recipe box so instead of a binder you got a box and instead of you know information cards you got recipes and then sometimes for the like the national geographic crowd or the nature crowd Mm -hmm. they would sell Kind of part worky things, but the whole point was instead of being on pages, binder, they would be cards, and they sold them as things for students, you know, and you would get wildlife or you would get birds or you'd get wildflowers. Now, I know yeah. those were topics, see, but it was a thing that was barely explored in the States. The whole thing of a long term subscription like that that you stuck with, mm-hmm. so that, and then it, you would file it when you got it. Mm-hmm. That didn't exist on paper here in the States. So when, when they came over, and I was approached in, like I said, the summer of 96, I don't forget it, Tish Palmer said, we're starting this new project, we've just got it licensed, and I and it blew me away. I was like, damn it, this is what I've been trying to pitch, because mm-hmm. there was so much being churned out, no one was keeping up with it, and all the old conventional ways were, were way too slow and cumbersome to keep up with. It. There was no way. And again, we didn't have the internet. The power of, you know, the internet was not there yet. Um, I... The first three people they approached were Mike and Denise mm-hmm. and Gar and Judy, Reeve Stevens, and myself. And Mike and Denise felt, I think, a sense of um, competition with the encyclopedia. So they mm-hmm. they helped out a little bit at the beginning, and they would be in touch, but they weren't actively. And then Gar and Judy did it until it just became a few – the first few issues, until it became a monster. Mm-hmm. You know, And they were, and they were working on their, um, their TV writing at the same time but, and their novels, and their, their, you know, their bread and butter was their books. Yeah. So I wound up being the only one of the three to really see it through the whole way. But meantime, what I didn't realize was it even revolutionized the way licensing was done. Because in the old days, um, and before, again, before digital everything, um, the licensing department at Paramount was organized as domestic and then international. Mm-hmm. And you guys know this. It's like the domestic market, and I lump Canada in with that. The domestic yeah. market was where they made their most money, just like the box office used to be the most money. Yeah. And then international was kind of – I don't want to say you were like leftovers or breadcrumbs. Oh, don't but worry. That was that's how like, it felt. Yeah, that's yeah. – well, but it's, it's – they're just – and they're not, make, trying, they're not making a value judgment. They're just looking at it in terms of money. You yeah. know, the, we're going to make 80% of our money here in America with an American product called Star Trek, and 20% we're glad to have it, and we'll sure buy, and we'll sure sell it. Mm-hmm. But 20% is going to go around the world, and a lot of the times we have people licensed to do that, 
don't know. They're just doing it. We're just happy to be in another country. And if the person that has the license has no clue about Star Trek and they bumble around and make some money for it, you know, which is why you have wacky doodle things in the 70s and the 80s and even into the 90s. Yeah. You know, you guys in Australia were the biggest markets by how the shows went for, for spinoff product, for licensed product. So back in the day, licensing was set up, um, uh, you know, domestic, and then the tiny fraction was for international. Mm-hmm. And we're talking everything from shirts and, you know, underwear and paper towels to uh, action figures and, and, and magazines and things. And a lot of things just got recycled or rebranded. I say action figures, model kits and action figures. And kind of but obviously books and magazines in non-English countries had to be translated. So that was yeah. a whole different layer. So when the whole idea of you know fact files comes from this British company in a concept that's very European, uh, it goes to the foreign, it goes to the foreign uh, licensing side. Yeah. And the idea of it was so massive, mm-hmm. they came in and said, "Okay, we're going to do these issues, but now when we get into it, do you have information? When we want to do detailed blueprints of the, uh, you know, of the Dudaville aliens ship." Mm-hmm. Which, you know, there's like maybe one or two photos, you know, in the old, you know, much yeah. less. And sometimes there was nothing. The hero mm-hmm. ships would have a lot of photography, right? The Enterprises mm-hmm. and Voyager. Everything else. The ship of the week, there's nothing on that. And yeah. and we're talking pre, we're talking baby CGI where overwhelming majority of things had been ships that had been redressed, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And even their appearance changed. And all you had in the 80s and early 90s was like a bad Polaroid, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So here's Fact Files setting this high bar because that's what tech fans want. And the Fact Files people, they got it. They got yeah. it. Because you guys had had Fact Files like military aircraft, like real world detailed techie things, right? Well, the, the first Fact Files that I remember is uh, my family having, uh, when I was about four, having an entire set of wildlife Fact Files. Mm. Yeah. Just about all different birds and na- uh, nature and everything, and that always blew me away. So when I saw something with Trek coming with the same thing, I was so excited about it. Well, I, you know, like I said, I, I'm an American. I'd never seen any of this before. I had the recipe card box and the wildlife <laughs> card box, you know, uh, filed things to kind of relate to. But I heard it explained to me as. Once that format became a hit and people were familiar with it, the we will send you X amount of pages a week and you put them in your binder and they'll and you have to file them because they'll come from all these different file tabs and you'll have to break them apart and file them as they need to be. And then after a while, you have this huge reference and it'll all be filed and it'll all cross relate. That's the other thing. Yes, it will mm-hmm. all cross relate. It's it's again, it's the paper version of a hot link, right? Exactly. At the so, bottom of the page, yeah. it would say like it, for any points, it'd be like C section 5.4 of this section so right. yeah yeah it was a combination of a hot link in in a library kind of oh, thing. so but those all had to be pre-planned and i think the conventional wisdom also was average joe subscriber when you're doing wildflowers or you're doing animals you know it's it's new for a while but then as we say here the new wears off mm-hmm. you know and after a while you do a few months and you go Okay, well, I'm tired of this, and why am I spending my money on it still, right? So people would subscribe for 10 issues or 20 issues or 30 issues, and very rarely did they go beyond 40 or 50 or 60 or whatever. And then at some point for the company, for the publisher, when the subscription rate 
drops below a certain point, and it, it, it's not cost efficient, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're losing money to publish in, in paper world, so uh, we're still in dead tree media here. So then that's when they end, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, pe- you know, it's a crapshoot, and then it turns into it's not about the format. It's like, are people going to buy flowers and or cute fuzzy animals, or are all the? And I, I heard that there had been like um, uh, military equipment. You know, like aircraft. Aircraft was a popular one yes. because that's you've got the whole world to do, right? And you've got the whole history of aircraft to do. So there were some topics that were more hardcore. Who knows? I don't know if they ever went into sports or you know whatever. But mm-hmm. that format, they found out, and I guess that had been a thing in the 70s and the 80s, I guess, in the 90s, whatever. Yeah. So, but they came over. So nobody in the states had any idea what the concept was, but they kind of got it. But this, <laughs> what happened was. The, the original idea was to do six sample issues, and I have a set of these six sample issues. I'm going to put them on Trekline Trunk sometime. If you, if you have any huge collectors there um, who are very sentimental about this, because they basically were the six issues that started the real run, but they were sampled and tested in some test markets. Mm-hmm. And when they caught it, they wanted to see how well they sold before they committed to the big project. So we did the six sample issues, and I, the first one had the bird of prey. Yes. I'll never forget that. Um. So and there's tons of reference on that, right? So the first mm-hmm. few issues, it was easy to do. So here's what happens. Number one, the the this is assigned to. Okay, it's a huge. People can see in licensing and people who are with the project know that this is going to turn into a huge amount of detail, right? Mm-hmm. The textual stuff about characters and all that, and the and the artwork. Right, the visual canon mm-hmm. with the ships mm-hmm. and the props and all that it was going to take a lot of digging. So they sold the deal, promising um, Fact Files publishers, uh, Aerospace Publishing, that there was enough um, material to back up the level of detail mm-hmm. that they needed, that they were promising subscribers, that would make it worthwhile. Because if it was just a flimsy little shallow treatment of everything, visually mm-hmm. and verbally, textually. It wasn't going to be special enough for people to buy, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and it would just and it would just duplicate what the encyclopedia had or what the tech manuals had, right? Exactly. Yeah. So if you're, you know, a deep dive, if you will, as we say in Portal 47. So, the six issues got done, and toward the end of the six issues, the cracks were starting to show that this was going to take a huge amount to do. Because if this was going to be weekly, yeah, it was going to take a huge effort. So. They had to staff up, so I I went from being a writer mm-hmm. to being basically my my early day title was art coordinator. Mm-hmm. But what that meant was, once we got going, I went to the archives, to the licensing archives, and every and I had the topics for each issue. So they would mm-hmm. make the uh, ta- the issue plans, right? Because yeah. they had to do massively. Everything had to be done up front because it all had to – you had to know something you weren't going to get to for three years, but you had to know the index number like you just said, right? Yeah. So and where it would go, and then you had to know how to, how to expand it if you needed to. And no one knew how long this would go. So I, the, the initial plan was to do 100 issues, which would make it, I think they said, the biggest part work ever, which, again, meant nothing to anybody in the States. But it's to people back deal. home, it was a mm-hmm. big deal, and it was a dicey proposition. So not only did it sell well, it sold out the wazoo. It was huge. We did the hundred issue, we did the thirty, and then the sixty, and the hundred, you know, hundred issues. 
what it turned into was staffing up here. There was a coordinator here on the ground, which was not me. Mm-hmm. I was just – I wasn't just writing, uh, and they paid very well too, I should say. Mm-hmm. I wasn't just writing what I turned into because I knew the licensing archives by then from having worked on my books and things and hadn't been a trusted licensing person. I became the research library person who would go in with the topics, pull everything available from licensing, and then I would write a memo back and say, guys, this is I – know, I know some of you may fall off your chairs, some of your younger listeners. <laughs> this was before frame grabs. If it didn't exist as photography, <laughs> it didn't exist, okay? Yeah. We could do crude – you know, like Polaroids are crude photography off of, of – now, things were changing rapidly. This is 96 and 97 and 98, but people could do frame grabs. I had frame grabs in um, my first edition of The Companion in 92, but they were fuzzy. They were low res, and they cost about $500 a piece. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because we were going to the Hollywood studios to do it, and there was no way this could be budgeted – once they got into you know the the little ships of the week, there was no way they could do all the turns and have it be factual. You know the front, the top, back, front, side, yep. three quarter beauty pass standard. Okay, five mm-hmm. five view package for every ship. Just as one example, once we got past the first eight or ten beauty ships that had a lot of photography, actual film photography, there was nothing to match that, right? Mm, yeah. And if you could even do a frame grab on a lot of the lower res, a lot of the stuff that the Blu-rays cleaned up on Next Generation, for example, you um, uh, it was going to be fuzzy, right? Even if you could have afforded that. So right out of the gate, you know, and a lot of that didn't have background material made up in canon. The designers hadn't done that. So right off the gate, looking for situations and episodes, looking for props, looking for technology, looking for um, ships. Looking for all the clips that were that were clips of characters. Even that was a that was like a three. Did I go in twice a week? Yeah, twice a week. Mm-hmm. I went in um, twice. A, no, three times. No, three times a week. I went to licensing three times a week and spent all day on the amount of issue plans that I had to do. Yeah, and then then I would write. A memo to write captions for because there was so much going on. Like, why did I pull this? I would write a caption. It was somewhere between a description and a caption. Mm-hmm. It turned into captions half the time. Like, why did I pull this for this topic? So I would get the copies, and we're talking about film on slides usually, yeah. slides, transparencies, and sometimes photos. But they wanted slides to shoot. So 35 millimeter slide transparencies, right? We'd get the slide sleeves, which was the – that was the lingua franca of the day because all the publicity stuff would be on slides. The publicity shots for each episode would come back on slides. And, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of times the – the then you ran into from the 80s onward, much less trying to get the 60s archives in, the 80s a production assigned the, the set photographer, right? Yes. And if you know – if you're looking at old episodes, you know this for years and years and years. Now we can frame grab. Now everybody can frame grab. Nobody even thinks about this. You go and you get screenshot. the exact <laughs> screenshot, right? But back in the day, you were stuck with the day that production decided to have a set photographer there, and they took. There were a lot of uh, you know, there were a lot of guest star characters who never had photography if they didn't happen to be there on a day. There were a lot of <laughs> sets that were never shot because they weren't there. Nobody thought that anybody would ever care about having photography of this. Mm-hmm. 10 years later, 20 years later. So, yes, frame grabs are our savior, but before frame grabs, it was that. 
and yeah. and then it was a case of people sitting down and watching videotapes and just making notes as that you know as they paused their tape and yeah. tried to and then artists would you know recreate stuff so that was all it was like the stone age of doing this in depth yeah and and that's what we were doing and i was i was a full-time job for me for six years back files was a full-time job and Absolutely. then i was editing communicators on the side mm. and then when cgi came into the shows licensing at first nobody was like oh those computer things and it's expensive and it used to be expensive just they would set up special they would get the hardcore the 3d models out and people like Gary Hutzel would set up special photo shoots, and they would do a cooperative deal with pocketbooks and things like for book covers and for mm -hmm. the calendars. They would do a cooperative deal and split the costs, and we would get better photography of the physical models that way mm -hmm. when they weren't being – or somebody would say, hey, we're shooting the so-and-so model. We're shooting the three-foot Enterprise D right now. No, not the Enterprise. It would have been something later. We're shooting the Voyager. We're shooting the DS9 station model. Quick, send a photographer over while it's out, and they've got it lit, and we can piggyback and have all this photography shot for licensing, of which Fact Files was going to want was going to consume the lion's share of the need, and they yeah. would do mm -hmm. that. But when the when the CGI ships came in, it was a scary thing, and and Stan and and Tisha on their own, and me on the side got in touch directly with Foundation, Ron Thornton in the beginning, late great Ron Thornton, and mm -hmm. said, look, we need to churn these out. We cannot pay fifteen hundred bucks, two thousand bucks for these guys when they, you know, we need one or two a week for two hundred yeah. times. You know, we can't afford that. What can we do? And they said, "Oh, well, when our guys have them in the bay and they've got the files up, we'll just, as we do each new ship, we'll just pull you a a front, back, top, sides, and a three-quarter beauty pass matted on a starscape." You know, mm, nice. so we. We went – so basically – and then after we had our deal going, licensing said, uh, can you like make a second copy, and we'll keep a copy back for our files? And to protect your investment, we won't let anybody else use it for six months. Yeah. See? So that's what happened. So because Fact Files pioneered that back when CGI was scary for anybody mm -hmm. in the business world to deal with, they pioneered that. And so that was one other thing I, was in my head. I coordinated mm -hmm. all that. And dealt with the effects houses. And then the other part that I did was when there was nothing, when we found out that a lot of the Trek people, and the reason that I got, I had already gotten to know them so well, and if I didn't, I got to know them. And one re one thing I'm counting on now with Portal 47, mm -hmm. the set decorators, the model builders, people who aren't even on staff but they were private vendors, prop builders. A lot of those people yeah. um, had their own – they had their own photography. Mm -hmm. My God, we wouldn't have pictures of the first Orion's. On, I mean, the first Orion girls and the, and the guys, if the makeup people hadn't done their own high-res photography, because the, the show mm. shows do it. So it became my thing around the lot or off-lot to get to know all the people who had their own uh, catalog of their own Polaroids or their own photography mm -hmm. and go and grab that for reference. So that was me. So that's where – I mean, I literally worked three full days a week. All the years back files. Doing well, that's that. the thing. I'm surprised you managed to fit much else in. It was literally feeding in. a monster. It was literally feeding a monster. But it was. And then yeah. it went on to two issues, 300 issues, and they're going, "My God, this is. There's never been a part work like this before." And it's like, "Well, guys, it's Star Trek, and nothing like that existed in the world for Star Trek." And I don't yeah. think anything of the same length has existed since. 
mm-hmm. either. Because what what was uh... well, the the internet's taken over that, and that'll never happen again until we no. have another shift. Because the internet, with by the time the fact files ran, not, that was O two, and then by O three and O four and O five, you know, Memory Alpha had come from being a baby project to being, you know, it was mm-hmm. basically the encyclopedia of the internet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you and know, I would by- imagine the early days, Memory Alpha probably took a lot from the fax files as well. Mm-hmm. Yes. But in, the uh, early days, Star- in the early days, Star Trek.com was building up its – I mean I wrote three-fourths of the database mm-hmm. for the early you – know, I'm talking about when it opened in 96, when it debuted in 96, in 97, and 98, 99. The original generation, uh, when they were just scrambling to get up and we had no budget mm-hmm. – <laughs> And I was like, getting a little bit of money to pull out of my own database that I'd been doing on my own. That I that I was able to. The reason I was able to start the Next Generation Companion in six months was because I had my own database that I'd built in early days of of Mac computing, and I had FileMaker, and I was doing my own, you know, database that way. So um, that's why I was such a go-to person in those days, because I was doing this on my own, and it didn't exist in the world. Now, mm-hmm. now we have. Now you can frame grab, you know, the shit out of anything. Now, memory alpha is there. People are contributing to that. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, um, you know, with uh, with the fax files though, because it was running concurrently with DS9, Voyager, then Enterprise, and whilst the TNG <laughs> movies were going on. Um, with certain things, obviously, if you was covering a topic. Um, how how would you cope? Because obviously sometimes I would imagine you would have to fill in some of the blanks uh, that like information didn't exist at that point. That then later down the line, an episode mm. of Voyage or something might come out that then explains what you've uh, already set out or totally contradicts what you've decided for that. Yeah. Oh, you figured that out, did you? <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> well. The good thing was so much of Voyager didn't apply to anything. That was mm-hmm. a relief, you know, unless they would make some comment about, oh, the Maquis or something, you know, or Cardassian this or Klingon that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they weren't the big bulk of, you know, DS9 was churning it out. And then Enterprise later on, you know, on the, the Enterprise really was doing front end gap filling, what I always yeah. call gap filling. So, yeah, it was, but it was just something that people had to deal with. And, you know that takes on a lot of different forms. Textually, there's always. I mean, it's what I've done for you know you your your listeners. I hope they read my column in the in the Dead Tree magazine, um, <laughs> Dead Tree Media, uh, which is also online too. But that's what you know. My column, Fistful of Data, has always done. It's tried to gap fill. Now today, yeah, we, just, we have the you know they say oh we're gonna retcon that, but that's what we did. That's what I was doing when I was a kid. That's what I loved to do was make the newer stuff fit in and make the errors and the bumps and hiccups in canon smooth out or, or find a way. You know, people freak out. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That contradicts. It was like, no, guys, come on. Come on. Texture. Texture is the is the beauty. You know, it's not a it's not an error. It's just yeah. texture. It's the exception that proves the rule. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there was a, it got to the point where there were about. I'm going to say maybe six or eight writer writers mm-hmm. and where I had originally been hired to be a writer. I backed off on that because so much of what I was doing was was resourcing and archiving or de-archiving and chasing down things and then explaining what I had done and why when I sent it on, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and 
the writing that I did do after the first year or so, the pieces that I wrote were the technical pieces that put it in layman's terms. Yeah. And it was a it was a dicey thing because what's unique about Star Trek was and it was a it was a line that it, and it was actually a it was a little bit dicey in the beginning because originally the deal for fact files was that they were not allowed to sell in the states. Now I know that didn't that mm-hmm. nobody in the in the UK or the rest of the world cared about that. But that's why nobody in the states has any memory of the fact files. 99% of the country has no idea what we're talking about when they because pocketbooks early on objected they did they were offered a, a partnership to mm-hmm. somehow repackage the fact files material whether it was as part works or whether it was put together in books or whatever and they declined because they said well we already have the encyclopedia we'll stand with that mm-hmm. but they what they didn't get and had no way of knowing I mean, I could have told them this, but what they didn't get was that the, the encyclopedia is covering, you know, barely two percent of the material that was going to be in the fact files. I mean, mm-hmm. it was deep, 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 because the the business model just blew them away. And technically, it was a magazine, not a book, yes. but it was nonfiction. So it was it was such a new paradigm that it nobody got it. But what people got very quickly was how huge a success. Within mm-hmm. within a couple of years, within a year, within a couple of years, the fact files were the biggest money maker for Paramount licensing. Period. I mean, I'm sorry, wow. not the biggest. They were number three in the world. Wow. Making money, domestic, foreign didn't matter. Mm-hmm. What that caused was after the fact files became huge, and again, this was in the time of the foam of, you know, this is '96, '97, '98. When, when Star Trek is like churning out two series at a time, right? Mm-hmm. And the movie. And it doesn't look like there's any end in sight. Mm. That got the attention, as money tends to do, of licensing. And so after after a couple of years, there was a reorganization licensing where instead of things, everything was, you know, there was apparel, there were toys, there was publishing, there, all those different categories, mm-hmm. you know, giftware, um, household items. All those different categories were in domestic, and then they were in foreign, or they were collapsed in foreign. Yeah. After a couple of years, that boundary went away, and everything was – there was just publishing, and there was just yep. housewares, and there was just toys. There was no foreign domestic division wall. Mm-hmm. So that – all of that money, all that income coming from fact files went across the board because all of a sudden the stepchild was suddenly running the family. <laughs> Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So that that was in, that had an effect, and of course this all became moot anyway. Then when Paramount, when Viacom split, and mm-hmm. and the whole thing was rejiggered again, but um, as it kept evolving on, on the business side, but that's that's the impact that the fact files had internally, you know, business wise. But for us, there was a there were there were at least six or eight free agent, you know, um, contracted writers, mm-hmm. and there were a lot of people that were full time writers. I was the only one doing what I was doing. Eventually, there was an archivist at Paramount. It got so big. Uh, Penny Jude, who you may see some of the Blu-rays back then, who died a couple years ago, sadly. But she was uh, she had she was Herman Zimmerman's assistant on the movies, and started assembling and having access. The other thing was I started getting access because things used to be squirreled away. In the years since the auctions, it's hard to imagine this because now everything is out there and private. Fan collectors own everything, and they put it online, and people share the. But back in the day of the shows, 
It was all, and it was also the pre-internet mentality, right? Mm-hmm. About the sharing versus it's our proprietary IP, and all of those, and plus it was just a lot of hassle. If something big enough came along that was going to provide enough money and resources, then we would make a big enough stir about it to go dig through archives. Other than yeah. that, blueprints to sets and ships and props are all just folded up and stashed away in file drawers up in the art departments. Mm-hmm. And you know mm-hmm. the show guys would go have to retrieve something if they wanted to, to redo it. But nothing from the outside world ever did that, unless it was a big dollar project from you know licensing or promotion or somebody came in and needed it, and certainly not on a regular basis. Well, another thing we pioneered was that's exactly what happened. Now, the files that I used to go to when they would do those exploded drawings of sets, some mm-hmm. of that, since we couldn't frame grab very easily, we would do what we could with slide photography you know, that the set photographers did. And if it was an obscure room or if we needed the angles that nobody ever thought to get because they were the obscure angles, then we would go, you know, finally we'd go and I, somebody had like five at a time to ha- handle the next couple of months. We'd go and pull the major blueprints, you know, with somebody from the art department. They're the art coordinator, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with me in tow and we would take them down and then they would send them down. And there used to be a blueprinter on the lot and they would make mm-hmm. copies of for blueprints. <laughs> and then yeah. I would ship them off to London, you know, to aerospace mm. mm-hmm. to be used by the artists to be copied and used by the artists in London. So so that was another, you know, that was another analog world way of dealing with all that. And so, even yeah. even the coming CGI ships didn't change that. So anyway, so what I'm trying to say is the American footprint for the fact files in, in London, you had the editorial offices and then mm-hmm. you, they had um, freelance artists doing things by, you know, spec. But mm-hmm. over here at the heyday, there were six or eight writers churning out the work and there was me, um, you know, handling coordination that way. Mm-hmm. So when you look at those early issues and you look at all the names in the front, that's what a lot of that is. But being fact files. No one ever had their name attached to a story. It was all anonymous. The only time we ever got credit was on that opening page because that's the way you mm. Brits do things. The, yeah. the magazine, the, the regular magazines, is the same way, and it drives me crazy. Because in America, <laughs> I, when I did the Communicator, I would always have my writers' byline. We put the writers' byline on the on the story. It wasn't hidden at the end of the little intro paragraph. It was up there, yeah. big, and on the contents. Because mm-hmm. I wanted people to know, oh, so and so writer is writing this because I like that writer. And, yeah. It's always been something. But anyway, so there was an army of eight to ten people in the States working on all mm-hmm. those things at the height, you know. And that's the thing. It was a huge success. So when it started winding down, and uh, when was the point that everyone decided, okay, 304 is the number? That's about, it. about six, nine months before that. I remember I had about six months to go, oh, my God, I've got to get a different job. <laughs> or not. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, it was about it was it was that was in O two, right? So it was it was probably oh, 2001, late 2001. And was it a question of at that point just the sales were starting to peter off? Yeah, yeah. It was the great juggernaut fact files were finally getting to the point where I mean, believe me, it would have gone on as long as it made money. But mm-hmm. there was such yeah. a huge and part of it was so much of the content had been gone through. Now we were down to one yeah. series, and. I think that time, and we this presaged Nemesis and thinking that oh, Nemesis yes, is the last TNG movie. So, and even before the malaise of the Enterprise ratings, and before anybody knew that Enterprise would be the end of the big, you know, the Berman TV modern television run, the big, the big well-oiled machine churning this out. 
Mm-hmm. It was it was a year or so before that. Um, yeah. Just because the content was starting to catch up. So yes. In fact, it had started to peter off with Voyager, and then we kind of ramped up a little bit again, as I recall, for Enterprise. Mm-hmm. Because the the deal now was retconning. Because now we're suddenly not dealing with new 24th century stuff. We're going yeah. back and revisiting what we thought we knew about Kirk's era and pre-Kirk yeah. era, right? And um, that was interesting. But your your thing a while ago about how did you fit the latter material into the, there were a couple of times when if something was huge enough, they would rejigger. You would get correction pages. And you would get mm-hmm. stickers. They would send out every so often those. You remember those? Yeah. The so stickers you were supposed to. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so there were attempts like that to keep that happening. Mm-hmm. But yeah. The other thing, though, the, in that vein was we started off with people doing as much canon materials, like call outs on a ship, say. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like the little, the little, uh, info blurbs, you know, the factoids that would be like have a, a line drawn in. This, this hatch is the front forward, you know, crew hatch or whatever. Yeah. Well, it started off, you would use as much canon material as you had, or you would watch the show and pick up things like, where are the weapons emitters, you know, on this thing? Mm-hmm. Uh, since you probably didn't have anything, the, the designer didn't do it, you know, or it was just a, a physical model they had stuck two new fins on and they were reusing it. Mm-hmm. So it went from that. Then after a while, somebody complained or people in licensing changed, and that wasn't me. I was really on the front. Aside from the articles that I wrote, I was totally on the front end. I would get the. I was just, I was just churning out the resources for everybody else. And I didn't. Yeah. Aside from a couple of times I filled in on vacations, I didn't do any back end checking because there were people checking mm-hmm. on the on the far end. And this was so overwhelming the licensing that the trusted people were also part of the team. Trusted people to licensing or former licensing people were hired to be checkers. Mm-hmm. On the back end, you know, editors. Yes. So, uh, before I even got back to London. So, the problem there was the whole point of this, again, was to have a certain level of in depth detail. After a while, I don't know, a year in or mm-hmm. so, there was kind of a revolt about hey, 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 we cannot add non canon material to these because people will take these as canon. So, stop mm-hmm. saying this, this hatch and this window and this engine is this, this, and this because we don't know that. And if you want to guess or if you want to say it appears to be, that's fine. So then it it kind of became – it was ridiculed a little bit on the fact files, a lot of the fans, because you would get these things that say, these hatch windows are triangular in shape and appear to be (laughs) conformed to the unique, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it would be these. These appear to be this, you know, this this landing leg provides a stable landing. And it's like, well, of course it provides a stable landing. It's a landing (laughs) leg. Yes. But to be able to fill up, to be able to abide by that, don't invent canon dictum, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that's what they were. So there was a after they were in the mature years, after like the third year, the fourth year, the fifth year, there was some kind of counter ridicule on fact files. And and I know at times, again, I was on the front end. Everything I touched personally, I tried to vouch for and I couldn't vouch for what an editor did down the line. And, and we were churning these out so fast, I didn't get my issues. In fact, I never collated mine. My issues are still just as they arrived in the mail with all mm-hmm. the binders empty. <laughs> but I never had the chance to sit down and read something. Occasionally, somebody would go, oh, my God, did you read this? And I would go back and go, oh, this was – oh, somebody eh, – <laughs> somebody eh, – you know, yeah. or you forgot this or this should have been included. And I'm not talking about latter-day material, latter material. I'm talking about in the moment. 
Mm-hmm. So there were there were complaints that you know there were typos that there were things creeping in, and mm-hmm. I will check that. I will chalk that up to just the fact that there was so much being churned out. Mm-hmm. It was a, it was an amazing army and amount of material. And again, it's the dying days of Dead Tree Media and mm-hmm. postal <laughs> postal freight. And you know, right before the, the the inter you know the internet made everything. If it's wrong, we fix it in two seconds, kind of a thing. Yeah. If I can break through, um, and we frame grab the hell out of everything, and nobody cares, and what's the big deal, you know? Mm. Um, and and I easily picked up these that these things are the same prop reworked five times, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> but that was so it was a really special time. It was right when there was this critical mass of so much material, right before it would be so much easier to deal with. Mm-hmm. You know, five or eight years later. And that's the thing. The part work um, uh, section has changed a lot in the sense of nowadays the majority of part works are you. the bulk of it is what you're getting with the magazine. It's the ship. It's the model that you're building. Mm. Where uh, back... So now the actual magazine itself might have two sections dedicated to how to build that part and then it will have like four articles where the the fact files was literally near enough a full magazine full of information that would traditionally Mm -hmm. may get sent out monthly but you're just churning it out every single week Mm. and to be honest it's an amazingly huge uh, feat to undertake and I I'm eternally grateful uh, that you was a part of that team, Larry, because uh, it it was a joy to collect. It was an absolute joy to collect. And I would say, when the very first fact file came out, I bought two issues, specifically because uh, at my senior school, or high school for Americans, uh, we was in an English class. We had been told that we needed to uh, practice like giving a talk and uh, discussing something in depth. So as soon as I bought that mm-hmm. first issue of the Facts Files, I was like, yes, I'm discussing Star <laughs> Trek. So literally got all of the blueprints up on the whiteboard and everything and stood and talked for 10 minutes about Star Trek in front of all of my school friends. And it was, uh, it was cl- in, in, cl- in class, in class, right? In class, yeah. So, what did your teacher say? Did they look? Did they say good job, or did they criticize you for your subject matter, or what? My teacher was a Trekkie and loved it. Oh, okay. Right. The other kids in the class. Good choice. Good choice. <laughs> Were they ridiculing or just kind yeah. of glaze-eyed? The thing <laughs> is, um, the thing is, it was a bit of fifty-fifty. However, I. I've always worn my colours on my sleeves with, when it comes to my geekdom, especially because in my year, I was the biggest guy in my year. So it's a question of, it, within my circle of friends, who I surrounded myself with, all of the geeks, all of the nerds, and I was the protector of the nerds. <laughs> oh, okay. You were the Adam Baldwin of your group there. Yes. Yeah. So. From, the body, from the bodyguard, yeah. Well, I I was very – I mean at the time the fact files came along, I knew there was this need because of all that information churning. I mean the irony today, like you said, is how the fact files experience is totally vacant. Now what happened was in the States, finally they were able to monitor – because part of the, the financing, part of the budget you know, model 
for Fact Files had been selling in America. And so all those years they weren't getting the Ameri- – you know, the monster market was America, obviously, and they weren't getting that income. And when they finally came up with a deal, it's, it was such a small town. The whole time that I was – within a year or two of, of working on Fact Files, Dan Madsen came to me to be editor in right here at front row of um, you know the studio with the access that I had then and the people I knew uh, and the trust that I had. To be managing editor for Communicator in a way that they never could, he never could do from uh, from Denver, and he had the Star Wars magazine, the Star Wars franchise for the official fan club, and the old model, the the uh, Star Trek fan club. They were trying to expand, so I took over doing the magazine in '98, and I was, which was every you know every two months, and it was a small thing, but I was doing both of those, and it was wonderful synergy, and. Mm-hmm. Um, um, where did I go with this? What happened was we were the official magazine, but we were technically the magazine of the official fan club, which sounds redundant. How they finally were able to get uh, Stan and Tisha and the Fact Files into the States as a market was selling it as a magazine, and it became the official magazine. And they aimed it at the, I, I still remember this. They, they called it the Architectural Digest level. So the communicator was going to be the consumer level. You know, four or five dollar magazine. Mm-hmm. The uh, the thick half inch thick um, Star Trek magazine, which was going to sell on their level, was going to be the Architectural Digest. You know, the thick posh upper level premium magazine. And mm-hmm. the way they would finance it was uh, basically Tisha came over as a one woman every two or three months would come over as a one woman writing machine and do interviews. And each issue of that, which went about four years, I think, three or four years. And I have all those issues, too. They would take the fact files material, especially the tech material, the exploded blueprints and mm-hmm. the prop you know, gear and the ships, which were still woefully unexplored in the American market. Mm-hmm. You guys got that. And if the Internet had been further along, uh, it would have been a bigger deal because the global boundaries would have been down and people in the States were going to be going, whoa, where, what the hell? Where, did, where is this coming from? You know? It was just starting to get that way when all this ended, you know, O2 mm-hmm. or so. But before that, you all had it all to yourselves. I say you all, you, the Germans, the Australians, the French, all the countries that they were the, – you know, I think there was an Italian. I think there was a French, was a and there was a German, and a Japanese, yeah, fact files. Yeah. There were at least four or five countries that got native issues translated, you know, starting back mm-hmm. in issue one and, and, and coming forward. But the States was this great yawning vacuum until they took the content, the more visual content, and reworked it. Mm-hmm. And half of each of the new Star Trek magazine, you know, it was half inch thick. A quarter mm-hmm. inch of that was recycled material, was background canon material. Half of it was uh, new news. So it mm-hmm. qualified as a magazine with a lot of technical briefings. Yeah. And Tisha would come over and do inter- – and I was so jealous because she was doing some interviews that I wanted to get to and just didn't – in my time, I didn't have it worked into my time if it wasn't an assignment. Occasionally, mm-hmm. I would get to. And she talked to a few people that passed away very soon that I had had on my list to get to, you know. but I was doing so much Fact Files origination work and then editing Communicator at the time and mm-hmm. working on Star- – and I was doing assignments for StarTrek.com. It was – Insane, 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 good, crazy days that I would love to have back now in some way, that way, on that, yeah. you know, and working closely with the studio and closely with the So for three or four years, they got to monetize all that finally in America as that magazine. Mm-hmm. And then, but then when that material, then people, you know, and then they stopped publishing. 
and people be I don't know if their numbers slipped a little bit and maybe it was dicey but mm -hmm. the basic reason was they went through all the material the fact files that was going to be translatable and that mm -hmm. was kind of the you know that was kind of the point of it so people in the states saw a lot of the fact files material they just didn't had no idea unless they've heard me talk or unless they've really researched themselves mm -hmm. They had no idea that that's what it started off as, and and how all that material was really all around the world before they ever saw it, you know. Yeah, and uh, to be honest, I, I'm not sure if it's just me being nostalgic or romanticizing uh, the fact files, but I still find nothing like nicer when it comes to looking up information than to go through the index to look up the page and find certain specific. Uh, subject yeah. matters. It's mm. absolutely still today. I enjoy it so much. Oh, D Uncle Wayne, you're just an old fogey. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. No, well, Larry, I don't know. Do you do you think a set of fact files is a white elephant now? You love uh, it, but do you think to most people it's a white elephant? Um, I think it's it's a question of I think I mean, there's definitely a couple of camps. I know that you can pick them up. The, the, the fact files haven't held any value whatsoever. They are right. very much, um, you hold them for nostalgia factor uh, yeah. and for collector's mentality because I know that you can pick them up for next to nothing. And sometimes people even just give them away because they need the space because it literally is. That's half literally of what I'm doing. I'm getting my those unbound the ones I never collated. They're still just as they arrived in the mail in the binders. Mm -hmm. I'm I've found a home for them. I found a library for them. So that's what I'm doing with mine. But um, I mean, aside the fact that so much of the information is online, a lot of the online information includes all of that original artwork that they paid so much for that was so precious mm -hmm. back in the day. Mm -hmm. Is you go Google an image for you know Enterprise D Battle Bridge or whatever. Or or Kazan Ogla Bridge, mm -hmm. and it's and and you go back and those 3D exploded drawings, 80% of those are the fact files original artwork. But of course, it's all been scanned and it's all online now, which is the sad, you know, we're yeah. we're right there with the music industry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's, that's the thing. There's pros and cons to both, most definitely. Now, Larry, <laughs> uh, before we uh, before we bid farewell, I know that you're always uh, busy. What have you got going on at the moment? Obviously, you, you definitely want to talk about Portal 47. Well, I was going to say, this is guys, this is like the longest I've ever talked about fact files in, in years. I think this is the yeah. longest I've talked about fact files while we were doing them. Um, yeah. No, yeah, Portal 47. If you, the way I've been talking about this is what is kind of underlying what we do with Portal 47. So I say mm -hmm. it's... it's um, you know, it's it's your in-depth guide to backstage savvy trek, or it's where no savvy trekker has gone before, mm -hmm. where no savvy fan has gone before. But um, it is. It's a it's a monthly package. It's it's. I launched it a year and a half ago. Uh, I, as soon as I get six Europeans, I'm doing a special session just for them, and we have four. So that was why it was so exciting to be at Sci-Fi Ball. We picked up some members there. But there's there's eight points every month um, that 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 work over the internet from my archives, and we have guests. That you've never heard of before, but it's all about getting to a deeper dive, a deeper level in your Star Trek background. It's not for everybody, but if you want to hear from people who worked on the shows, not just actors, but the people who made decisions and were there and worked with the people who made decisions, that's the highlight of every month, the telebriefing.
happening with me. There's things out of my archive. Uh, there's 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 eight points in all. So it's portal47.net. I, I say it's for new fans, old fans, bored fans, and fans who have no idea how much they still don't know about Star Trek. Mm. So I hope everybody always more to know. I hope everybody. Yeah. And I, I tell you what, this when I'm live at a convention like I just was at Sci-Fi Ball, mm-hmm. I'll have a special deal for people that sign up while I'm there. We have a drawing even, and I have a drawing with a prize mm-hmm. for us. Uh, sure. If anybody listening to your podcast uh, hears me talking about this and wants to come over and join, let me know when you join up at portal47.net, and I will do it because it's for a year commitment. It's the in the states, it's the cost of two movie tickets a month. It's twenty-seven dollars in the states is at the in the primary level. And right now, I am launching a premium level called Deck One, which mm-hmm. just got launched, and I'm talking to people about. That's a very small group, invited only. But to come to Primary Portal 47, people that go ahead and jump on, send me a note on the side and say, let me know that if I see UK and I see an uptick, I'll know it's from you guys probably. But write me on the side, and I will I will give you a 13th uh, month free. Yeah. I'm excited to do this because for years we have interviews and we have magazines and we have podcasts even, and we have conventions. And it's frustrating to know there is so much out there that people haven't been able to experience that I would love to be able to share myself or be the gatekeeper that gets it out to people. And that's, again, Portal is is jumping in and, and deep diving, and that's I'm just thrilled to be able to do that. And, and um, you know, we have, a, we have our own Facebook page for the members to talk back and forth on, too, and the community is even growing. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah. We, we get together live when I'm at conventions, and there's members there. We call those live dives. So, uh, yeah, and I'm even doing uh, day tours here in L.A. when people are here in town that are – so hopefully with who we have so far, if you have any of your new listeners come aboard, the bottom line is that once I have six from Europe, I will do a special session of our telebriefings just for European time frame, for your prime time. Because 3 a.m. is kind of hard for even dedicated truckers to come deep dive with us. <laughs> now, that, that is kind of you, Larry, because that's the thing. The, the, I've learned from the past of podcasting with people stateside. It can be a bit of a trick to uh, time it up. So I'm sure people will most yep. appreciate that. Yeah, well, we have our existing mem- – I mean, everybody, part of your package is you get recordings of everything. Mm-hmm. So people do get so our so our Brit members do get their um, and Welsh I should say two of them are Welsh uh, our UK fans our European fans do get the recordings but that's not the same as being there live mm-hmm. so um, so anyway so yeah yeah was at the very beginning we were fighting time zones this is the part of the dynamic of this of 4047 is just being trying to be global anyway and then still have some live touches like when I'm at a convention or when people come to LA. Mm-hmm. And there's some things on the drawing board for later on that I want to do live that would be part of that too. But um, but that's one way we can bridge that global time. We can't fight the time zones, no. even if we have the internet. So that's one way we can do it. And I'm totally happy. I just have to make it, you know, make sense uh, because it is, this is a business for me, and it's one that I'm excited. I'm excited for Trek, and I'm excited for my own fandom, and I'm excited for fans that uh, are excited by this. And I'm excited to have it be a paying business So as I grow it. So for all those reasons, I, it's all the best. It's all of us getting to put our passions together in a good way, in a whole new way. So sometimes, sometimes you know, like you said with the fact files, sometimes pioneering something new takes a while for everybody to get used to how it works and work out the kinks. And, um, but anyway, I'm excited. So hopefully we'll, uh, we'll have a few more from your side of the pond. 
Definitely, definitely. Get on to that, guys. Uh, can't recommend uh, subscribing to Portal 47 enough, because if Larry does anything, he only produces gold. If anybody is going to convention, you know, the Vegas this year, check out our Geek Nation tours. This is not the year for the big tour before Vegas, but this we do have our one-day tour out to the Valley of Fire where Kirk died and a few other Trek-related items on that tour. It's the one day before the convention starts. So um, I, it's going to be on my blog here very quickly. You can go to geeknationtours.com and look at the Valley of Fire tour. It, there's like 30 or 40 geek-type niche tours up there. It's not mm -hmm. the only thing. But I did want to start talking about that. It's I think it's Tuesday, August 1st. So a lot of people come in. If you're going to Vegas, they come in a day early anyway or a couple of days. So it uh -huh. fits that. It's Con Eve. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Con yeah. Eve day. So I did want to mention that too. But otherwise, everything is at you know the Con of Wrath, my documentary. We're wrapping that up this year. Um, cool. Trekland Trunk is where a lot of my archival things, I'm letting them go. Uh, have you, can have you got any new Trekland on speakers coming? Any what? Uh, tre uh, the Land on Speaker. Oh, 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 Trekland on Speaker. Yeah, that's where I remaster all those old hour-long archival tapes to get them out to people. Again, stuff mm -hmm. that needs to get out to people in an in-depth way. Do one every year at Vegas. So I have, and Volume One is out of print that I need to get online to download. So I still have Volumes Two through Five. Last year's was a celebration for the 50th anniversary. It was actually I called it 30 at 50 because at the 30th anniversary. They did flashback on Voyager and Trials and Tribulations on DS9, mm -hmm. and it's basically a big chunk of my set visit for both those days. So there's actually like 18 voices that you hear from the flashback and from Trials and Tribulations shows, from from Grace Lee Whitney and David Livingston and Mike Okuda down to a, a guy who worked on set for Tribulations who was also working at Desilu when they filmed the original uh, Trouble with Tribble show, and he talks about being there when they filmed. Anyway, it's amazing. It's audio, mm. but anyway, so that's that's at my that's at LarryNimichek.com too. But thank you for asking. They come. The next new one will be out. Uh, I don't know what it's going to be. Maybe another TNG tie-in since this is the 30th anniversary. But mm -hmm. I've got over 600 hours, and these things are just you know like an hour and a half at a time. Even when I do this, but again, it's it's getting a little bit more out for people with with context, mm -hmm. with context. And it's, it's one of those things that you, uh, it, I can imagine how much time it must uh, take for whoever ends up cleaning up the audio and editing uh, things down because uh, tapes don't last forever. Well, that's so, the I'm running against that. Yeah, and uh, you know. Um, uh, Chris Jones, who's the the founder of the Trek FM podcast yeah. network, he does. Chris actually does the remastering and he does the graphics on the labels. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> since since the first year, so he's been good to work with me on that. And um, that's a thing I always want to give him a huge shout out because he suffers from me being late with him every year in the <laughs> pile of pile of deadlines. So uh, so yeah, but thank you for asking about that. But uh, volume two, three, four, and five are all available at my site, and there's a discount if you buy more than one and and all of that stuff. And I have them with me if you're ever live at a convention uh, with me. I have them with me at my table too. So, so I was, I, you know, conventions are happening, and I, um, I was thrilled to be over at Sci-Fi Ball and see hardcore Brit fans, mm -hmm. you know, that were not watered down in a huge, 
Comic-Con type situation in by mm-hmm. subject or even in a big uh, in a huge you know big huge convention. And that was that was great. So um, yeah, a lot of we're trying to trying to wrap up Portal for uh, the Con of Wrath and launching Portal 47. And I have a couple things at mid-year. Next time we talk, I may be able to talk about too, but they're still on the drawing board. So and of course, we're all waiting on Discovery yes. to uh, settle down and launch. So that's exciting too. Yes, and that's the thing. The Discovery, uh, if we start talking about that, we will carry on for another <laughs> two hours. So. Save it for later. Save it for later. Exactly. So uh, thank you so much for discussing, uh, discussing the facts files with us because the, uh, I have a lot of love for the facts files and I know that people will certainly get a kick out of uh, hearing the inner workings. Uh, of the facts files because it, it is something that uh, a lot of people do hold dear and are nostalgic about so thank yeah. you so much for taking the time to talk to us about that well thank you for having me because I know to your listeners it's a big deal I talk, I'm talking in a vacuum when I talk about it here in the States so I'm glad mm-hmm. to get to people that appreciate <laughs> yeah appreciate and those days <clears throat> And uh, come trek on next year when we eventually get you over, Larry. I'm going to get you to sign all 304 issues. <laughs> maybe, maybe we'd better start now. Yeah. <laughs> oh dear. So. Uh, well, I'll hold you to that. I'll hold you to that. When I see you at Trek on. Yeah. Good luck with Trek on, by the way. Thank I'll you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Really appreciate it. So that's been Trek Mate for this week. I've been Wayne Emery. I've been Jude Hawkins. I've been Larry Nimitschek, and I still am Dr. Trek. Trek well, everybody, and that's Trekmate. There's a man that works in sick pay full time. To everyone, he's a doctor on Deep Space Nine. With every dart he throws, O'Brien's sure to go. Odds are they'll be found on the hollow sweets of tomorrow. Doctor Starfleet Man, Doctor Starfleet Man, they've enhanced your genetics and named you Julian. Have a crush on Jaxia But later on she marries Warp Sosia I'll be careful of Garak Make sure he's got your back Odds are that he's no civilian tailor Doctor Starfleet Man Doctor Starfleet Man your genetics I named you Julian This will be perfect Real Frontier medicine I had my choice of any job in the fleet Did you? I didn't want some cushy job Or a research grant I wanted this The farthest reaches of the galaxy one of the most remote outposts available. This is where the adventure is. This is where heroes are made. Doctor Starfleet Man.
David hands to your genetics I named you Julian Playing racquetball on the station Always full of all sorts of information If someone gets real sick You get them healed real quick The fact is Cisco has the best physician Doctor Starfleet Man Doctor Genetics and named you Julia. Doctor Starfleet Man. You've been listening to the Trekmate Podcast. Would you like to get a hold of us? Visit trekmate.org.uk and boldly go where no podcast has gone before. Make it so. Prepare to attack. All hands battle station. Don't worry. We will get to the bottom of this. All right. Is a tall ship and a star steer by. I don't want excuses, I want answers. Am I authorized to enter the neutral zone? How do you think that tells me about your character? Captain's log, stardate 3541.9. Program complete. Enter when ready. I am Captain Jean-Luc Picard, and I approve this message. Tweet us at TrekMate1701. Make it so.